Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So we're going to be looking at Acts 23. And again, we're in the final stretch of our series on the book of Acts. We only have a handful of chapters after this. And what a book of the Bible this is. We started with Jesus in chapter 1 promising his disciples. He looked at them, this ragtag group of people, and he said, you are going to be clothed with power the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my witnesses from your local town here, where we are, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Acts 1-8 outlined the whole book, and we've just been seeing that happen. We saw in chapter 2, Pentecost, the answer to the promise of Jesus. The Father sends the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes on the church, and thousands of new Christians begin to fellowship in homes. And they describe what they did, and it was they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so we see that pattern through the rest of the book. The simplicity of meeting in homes, being together, worshiping together, opening the scriptures together. And then we also saw, after that, not long after, a persecution emerged against them. These new believers by the thousands from town to town began to experience the clampdown of persecution, but they didn't stop, did they? Church, did they stop? Did they say, you know what, it's getting hard, I'm out. I think I didn't know what I was signing on for and this is getting really uncomfortable, so I think I'm done and maybe I'll come back to Jesus after the persecution ends. That's not what happened, is it? I mean, they were unstoppable. It was almost like the more pressure that came the more faith they had and the more confidence. So as they were spread by persecution, they took the gospel with them, didn't they? So especially beginning at chapter 8 and chapter 9, wherever they spread, they took the gospel of the kingdom. And we saw Paul's conversion in chapter 9, one of the great persecutors, and this dude got lit up. Jesus knocked him off his horse. He had a face-to-face encounter with the risen Jesus, and he ended up being the missionary of all missionaries. And we've been tracing out his three missionary journeys, haven't we? Where he was planting churches all through Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and even into Europe. And now we're at a place in the story, this absolutely thrilling story, where Paul is on his final journey to Rome. And what we see in these last chapters here, as I've mentioned, is Paul is having the opportunity to share his story with various Jewish and Roman leaders. And so that's going to be the end of the story. We're going to see him do that time and time again. So we looked at that last Sunday. We saw Paul defending himself in chapter 22, sharing his story again, his conversion story And then today in chapter 23, for the first time in the book of Acts, we're going to see Paul called a prisoner. Chapter 23, it's Paul the prisoner. 
And we're going to see him in these verses that we look at together, trusting in God's providence. We're going to look at what that means in a minute. We're going to see Paul talk about having a clean conscience, and then we're going to talk about Paul having courage in Jesus. So let's begin at verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 10, and we're going to be looking at Paul again before another council. And as I read this, I think Paul is like a hot potato. Nobody wants to hold him for very long. It's like, what do we do with this guy? You got the Sanhedrin, and they're like, what, what do we do? And he's going to be really effective with this Sanhedrin council again today. And so they toss him, and then the Roman leaders are like, we don't know what to do with him. It sounds familiar, right? Jesus was a hot potato as well. And so we're going to see Paul and the council. Let's look at verses 1 through 10. While Paul was looking intently at the Sanhedrin, the council, he's in Jerusalem, He says this, brothers, up to this day, I've lived my life with a clear conscience before God. Then the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. At this, Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting there to judge me according to the law? And yet in violation of the law, you order me to be struck. Those standing nearby said, do you dare to insult God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not realize, brothers, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a leader of your people. Then when Paul noticed that some were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, he called out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When Paul said this, a dissension began between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection or angel or spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all three. Then a great clamor arose, and certain scribes of the Pharisees group stood up and contended. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him when the dissension became violent? The tribune, fearing that they would tear Paul to pieces, ordered the soldiers to go down, take him by force, and bring him into the barracks. Friends, this is the word of God. And Paul is in yet another council as a hot potato. They don't know what to do with him in this Jerusalem council And they were about to kill him in the previous chapter. Now he's again in the Sanhedrin giving account. And Paul looks at them and he begins to speak. He addresses them respectfully, doesn't he? It starts off pretty well, doesn't it? He calls them brothers because he himself is a Pharisee and was a member of the Sanhedrin. So he calls them brothers or colleagues. And then it goes south quickly, doesn't it? He says that he's lived life. Seems like a pretty innocent statement, doesn't it? It just means biblically that he's living humbly before God and obeying God. That's what he's making a claim to. And this doesn't sit well with a high priest. So he has him, the word there means punched. 
punch that dude in the mouth because what he is saying is blasphemous. I want us to look at that in a minute, but we're going to look at this key word. This is the first time in the whole book of Acts that the word conscience is mentioned. It's kind of a Christianese term, isn't it? But it's actually a really important term that Paul is introducing here. What does he mean by conscience? And what does he mean by having a clear or clean conscience? Friends, if we get a hold of this, this is important. This is an important part of walking with Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. The word conscience, con-science, means to know with. It's like an inner judge or witness, isn't it? When you think about what conscience is. Paul ends up talking about this over 20 times in his letters. He mentions conscience over and over and over again. It's the first time mentioned in the book of Acts. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.5. can look there later, but it's so important, this idea of conscience, that Paul says, our aim, my aim, the goal of my ministry is that you believers would be transformed by the love of God through the word of God, resulting in a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So part of Paul's ministry is to help people walk with a clear conscience. And we know that a good, clean, healthy conscience is a work of grace only through the Holy Spirit. Would you agree? One person says, conscience is like a window that lets in the light of God's truth and his word. The cleaner the window is, the more the light shines in. But if the window gets dirty, the light gets dimmer, unable to shine through, and may even fade to darkness. So friends, this is important, what's being introduced here. Paul talking about a conscience Paul's going to go on to say in other letters, he says in 1 Timothy 4, 2, that the last days will come when people have their conscience seared or cauterized. Like they have no conscience anymore. So friends, we want to know how to walk with God in grace through the power of the Holy Spirit to have a good conscience. Esther shared a few weeks back from Galatians 5 that we as Christians are called to walk with the Holy Spirit, to walk in the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit form Christ in us and grow the fruits of the Holy Spirit and a big part of walking with the Holy Spirit and listening to the Holy Spirit's direction is to have a clear conscience. Would you agree? Think about Paul saying this. He did not have a clear conscience back in chapter 8 and 9, did he? His window was covered with grime. There was... No light coming in to him. So Christ has entered his life, saved him, rescued him, regenerated him through the Holy Spirit, and given him a clear conscience. So I, wanna, I want us to think about how our conscience is going right now. How are we doing with that little inner window and letting the light of God's truth come even when it's really uncomfortable? How are you doing with your conscience? Are you listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit who works through our conscience like an inner moral compass that guides us? How are you doing? This is a daily and weekly struggle for me. Anybody else? 
I hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. I know what is true. I know this is the way, walk in it. And I try to do that through God's grace most of the time. But there are times when I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to follow my own compass and it never goes well. Anybody else? And so we want to be sensitive to the grace and mercy and leadership of the Holy Spirit. I remember when my conscience was quickened and came to life when I was 17 years old. I just, I remember it like it was last month. It was like, whoa, this is what it's like to have a clear conscience. This is what it's like to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And then it becomes a lifetime of guarding that and nurturing that and preserving it and sitting in the Lord's presence and letting his word wash over us so that we have a clear conscience. Takes practice, doesn't it? Would you agree? What I'm inviting us into by looking at just that one little phrase there is a life of mercy and grace and love. God gives you that internal witness, that internal compass, that internal guide because he loves us. And the more that we'll nurture it and protect it. I'm just having this memory too. Everybody has a conscience. I remember, this is kind of radical, but I remember a serial killer talking about getting saved and talking about his conscience through his whole life. All the things that he was doing, his conscience told him not to do that. So friends, the conscience speaks to us. Thankfully, this man was born again, apparently. We do not want a seared conscience. So look, verse two. The high priest orders Ananias. I mean, the high priest is Ananias. He orders someone to strike Paul on the mouth. And I've already mentioned that that word means punch. So it's a Mike Tyson kind of blow right into his mouth where he's spoken something that seems to be unacceptable. Now, friends, does he respond like Jesus did when he stood before the council? He doesn't, does he? Why do you think that is? He lashes out. He says, God's going to strike you. You've struck me. You're a whitewashed wall. How are you sitting there to judge me? We get to see Paul in all of his human glory. Nowhere in scripture does it say that Paul was sinless. Is that right? Matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the chief of sinners. He looks back over his life, he says, I am the greatest sinner of them all. So he nowhere claims to be sinless like Christ. It looks like Paul lost his temper. And that's the beauty of scripture, the candor, the transparency. We get to see the apostle lose his temper. He did not like getting punched in the mouth. And so he had an angry reply here. He calls him a whitewashed wall. What does that mean? Something that we see in Matthew 23 and Ezekiel 13, it basically means you're a hypocrite. You look clean on the outside, but inside you're crumbling and falling apart, just like an old broken wall. That's what Paul is getting at here. What's interesting about his statement is it ends up coming true. So Paul in this moment of weakness, actually speaks the truth, and this guy's going to end up struck down later on in a, a revolution. He's going to be assassinated. Why didn't Paul recognize the high priest? Some of you would, as we read that, you may not think it, but I, I thought it. 
I was like, how does Paul, as a former member of the Sanhedrin and the council, how does he not recognize Ananias? And there's numerous views on this. You want to hear a few of them? One is that Paul had poor eyesight. Commentators think that he caught malaria and he struggled with poor vision the rest of his life. In the book of Galatians, he talks about having to use someone else to write the letter a secretary or an amanuensis. And so Paul, at the end of the letter, takes his own stylus or pen and writes out in big letters his name. And he says that. He also says in Galatians that the church there, if they could, would take their eyes out and give them to Paul. They loved him so much. So apparently he had eye trouble. So it could be that he didn't see clearly that that was Ananias. The second thing is it could have been that he was away from Jerusalem for many years. He didn't recognize this guy and the guy was not formally dressed wearing the robe of a high priest because it was an informal meeting. I think that Paul was being sarcastic. I think that Based on the context here, Paul looks at him and says, I can't believe that someone like you is sitting in that chair as the high priest. Not sure exactly what it means, but how could someone act like this if they're truly the high priest? But friends, it's beautiful to see. Paul owns his mistake, doesn't he? He says, I'm sorry what I said what I did is in violation of scripture, so I own it and I'm sorry. It's a beautiful moment, isn't it, to see Paul. But then look what he does at verses 5 and 6. He's looking at the council. I see one of our lawyers chuckling here because this is a brilliant move. He, he looks at them and he goes, hmm, I have an opportunity to shake things up here. He knows there's two groups that argue over certain points, and so he puts his feet firmly in one of the groups and says, I'm a Pharisee. And I'm here on trial for the resurrection. And instantly it divides the whole Sanhedrin. And they end up throwing the hot potato out again, Paul. Look at verse 11. After this episode happens, once again, this is the fifth time we've seen this happen. But look at verse 11, friends. That night, after all of this turmoil, after being punched in the mouth... What do we do with this guy? Look at verse 11. That night, the Lord stood near Paul and said to him, Keep up your courage. For just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness also in Rome. So here's Paul and Jesus. The fifth of six personal encounters like that. We've seen it in chapter 9. Chapter 16, chapter 18, chapter 22, and here, and then we'll see it again in chapter 27. Jesus comes to him. We don't know exactly what that looks like. That night, it could have been in a dream, could have been in a vision, could have been a strong awareness of his presence. We're not sure, but Jesus was there for him. And look at what he said to him Keep up your courage, take courage. And these were words that Jesus says regularly in the Gospels. Do you remember? In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there were times when he was healing. Matthew 9, for example, he tells the person that he's healing, take courage. 
famous story in Matthew 14 when the boat is being tossed about in the storm. Jesus tells his disciples, take courage. In the upper room, John 16, the last supper, he tells his disciples to take courage. What is really interesting here is you think about, and again, he's in lockdown. He's a prisoner. We think back to the Apostle Peter, chapters 4 and 5, when he was a prisoner. Can you remember back what happened with him? What happened to him, church? The church is gathered praying for Peter. He's been arrested. He's in prison, and what happens? Chains fell off, and then what? Then he's set free from the prison. Sometimes that's what the Lord does. That's what the Lord chose to do with Peter. Chains fell off. He's set free from prison miraculously. God stepped in and worked a miracle. Is that what happens with Paul here? No. No, the Lord actually says, stay courageous. You've testified here. I'm sending you to Rome to testify more. I'm going I'm to protect your life, but there's no promise of the chains falling off. So Paul at this moment has to trust the providential care of God. Not the miracle-working, liberating, delivering, instantaneous kind of thing, but he has to trust the providential care of God, that God is going to work through events and people around him in a way that doesn't look miraculous. You see that, friends? Required great faith. The text invites us into trusting God for his providential care. Now, we pray for miracles, don't we? I'll take choice one. Anybody else? Lord, would you intervene, cause the chains to fall off? I need an intervention. Move. But the Lord might say, that's not what I'm doing. You might have an instance right now that you're carrying in your heart, and you might say, I need you to trust, to take courage, because my providential care for you over a longer haul is going to work out. So, friends, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Some of you are saying, I, I did last week. Not sure about this week. I, f- I feel you in that. But we want to learn to trust. We ask for a miracle, but he might have other plans to work out. And his care for us is beyond belief. Don't have time for this because we're getting ready to go share lunch together. But in verses 12 through 22, interesting here. I'm just going to summarize it. We're going to end on time, but the next morning after he has this encounter with Jesus, 40 fanatical Jews form a conspiracy against Paul. And they bound themselves by an oath and by fasting to kill Paul. And they wanted to get Paul on a journey so that they could ambush him and kill him. And this is very interesting. We find out that Paul has a nephew. The text says that Paul's nephew became aware of this plot. Look at verse 16. The son of Paul's sister heard about that ambush, so he gained entrance to the barracks and told Paul because in that day prisoners actually, like Paul, could have family members come and 
bring them reading materials and food and care for them so he has access. Paul's nephew comes and tells him about this plot. And so Paul ends up sending his nephew to go tell the authorities. These are key moments in this protection of Paul. And so why all of this detail? Why all of this? Again, Luke is a historian and he prizes the fact that he can tell us details like this. And it's going to make sense. It's going to pave the way for the rest of the story, the rest of the narrative. Once these Roman authorities found out that Paul was a Roman citizen, they have to protect him. If anything happens to him, it's their reputation. It's actually their life on the line. So it's very, very serious. There's a leader called the Tribune, and he said, we're aware of this ambush plot, so I'm going to surround him with 240 soldiers and take him to Caesarea. I'm getting him out of here, and we're going to Caesarea. He's going to meet with the governor, Felix, and he's going to be absolutely protected. And so that's where our story lets off, and we'll come back to this. But Paul being protected by a bunch of men on horses, Paul himself is on a horse, and they're journeying through the night, and he's protected by the Roman authorities because Jesus has plans for him in Rome. Amen? Why don't we stand?